0: Bob Murphy Show, episode one eighty four. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. This is gonna be a bit of a popery where I'm just going to draw on several things that I have been meaning to talk about, and they're all loosely related in the sense that they all involve nonviolence. All right, so that's why the title of this episode is "Nonviolent Solutions to Social Problems. So we're going to talk about, in the beginning, just to give you an outline of where we're going here in the beginning, we to talk about Gene Sharp, then we're going to mention something that Silas Barda brought to my attention about something I wrote years ago that has surprising relevance to... Donald Trump and what happened on January 6th and then I'm going to give the results of the louis C k contest that I recently sponsored as I it's not that I forgot about it it was just stuff kept happening and so I it was never the the right time for me to tell you folks who won that contest because you know there was a uh, an attempt to overthrow the democratic government of the righteous and legitimate biden administration that was one of the things that I wasn't Expecting. So that's what we're doing today in this episode. So, for those who don't know, I've alluded to it a few times and had some outright episodes on it, but I am a pacifist coming out of the Christian tradition. Again, just to avoid confusion, I am not saying to be a good Christian, you have to be a pacifist. I understand there are plenty of Christians who are solid and can use the Bible to argue that Christians aren't supposed to be pacifists. Okay. I disagree with you, but. I get that that's, you know, you have a strong case. But I also want to stress to people, you don't need to be a Christian for these arguments to be appealing. All right, in other words, I could make the case for nonviolent responses to social problems without appeal to the New Testament. All right. And so that's uh, what I'm going to try to be doing in this episode that's where i'm coming from in this episode all right okay so first who is this guy gene sharp he has been called the machiavelli of nonviolence and that that kind of summarizes that motto or description summarizes what he does is that he's a political theorist and he's giving people techniques or advice on hey here's how you can resist tyranny or dictatorship without taking up arms Right. So that's that's where he's coming from. And he's what's interesting is, too, I, I saw I don't know if I saw his video or I just saw, you know, something he had written. But when he went into this, he had assumed that people needed to embrace nonviolence for moral reasons. And he was pessimistic about that because he just knew, no, most people think it's legitimate to use violence, you know, to defend yourself or to you know stop an aggressor or, or a tyrant. And he was pleasantly surprised to discover that throughout history, even the successful movements where, where people had used largely nonviolent means to resist tyranny or over- topple a dictator, what have you, that the people involved, it's they weren't doing it because they had some purest dedication in the abstracts to nonviolence. It was just they looked at the situation and determined, we can't beat this guy or you know this group with guns that were outgunned and so we need to do something else and so it was a pragmatic move all right so that's that's why he's called the machiavelli because it's the, it's like this is real politic he's he's not appealing to your moral niceties and value judgments he's just saying this is an effective way especially if you're encountering an opponent who's got tanks and stuff and you don't how how can you stand up to somebody like that well you're not going to fight them in open battle you got to change the battlefield as it were okay so anyway Here's, uh, let me just read a little bit from his Wikipedia entry. Gene Sharp, so he was 1928 and born and died in 2018, was an American political scientist. He was the founder of the Albert Einstein Institution, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the study of nonviolent action and professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. He was known for his extensive writings on violent struggle. And it explains, you know, a lot of the awards he won and so on. Gene, I'm I'm skipping down here. Gene Sharp described the source of his ideas as in depth studies of Mohandas K. Gandhi, A.G. Must or Musty, I don't know who that is, Henry David Thoreau to a minor degree, and other sources, footnoted in his 1973 book, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, which was based on his 1968 PhD thesis. In the book, a three volume classic on civil disobedience, that's how someone else described Sharp's book. He provides a pragmatic political analysis of nonviolent action as a method for applying power in a conflict. Sharp's key theme is that power is not monolithic. That is, it does not derive from some intrinsic quality of those who are in power. For Sharp, political power, the power of any state, regardless of its particular structural organization, ultimately derives from the subjects of the state. His fundamental belief is that any power structure relies upon the subject's obedience to the orders of the rulers— if subjects do not obey, rulers have no power. Okay, and another thing to mention here, well, let's see here. I'm reading, st- still reading from the Wikipedia. Sharp has been called both the Machiavelli of nonviolence and the Klosvitz of nonviolent warfare. It is claimed by some that Sharp's scholarship has influenced resistance organizations around the world. His works remain in the, the ideological underpinning of the work for the Serbian-based nonviolent conflict training group, which helped to train the key activists in the protest movement, the toppled President Mubarak of Egypt, and many other earlier youth movements in Eastern European color revolutions. Sharp's 93 handbook, From Dictatorship to Democracy, was first published in Burma, the fourth edition in 2010. It has since been translated into at least 31 other languages. Okay, and it goes on to explain how a lot of these groups around the world have have used his writings as inspiration or at least as guidebooks. So and the, there's a documentary about him titled How to Start a Revolution. And that's uh I've watched most of that. I think for some reason I didn't finish it. Got sidetracked and I didn't go back to it. But from what I saw it was good stuff. Let me just be clear, I'm not endorsing everything he's ever said, but it's really especially if you think pacifism sounds nice, but oh come on, we gotta be realistic in the real world. There are people out there with guns. Right. Gene Sharp knows that and he's showing how people throughout history have stood up to other people with guns without themselves engaging in violence and how it often works and how there's plenty of situations where it would not have worked had the people used guns. The reason that, again, that they turned to nonviolence was because they realized we can't win this in a conventional sense, like in a conventional military sense. So he's one of his items is uh he has a compilation called 198 methods of nonviolent action. Okay, and so Sharp went through history and just, you know, he conceptually came up with 198 different ways that people can use nonviolent action to stand up to tyranny and so he classifies them and then gives historical examples. So, it's various things like public speeches, letters of opposition or support, signed public statements, things like that, group or mass petitions, You know, slogans, leaflets, pamphlets, picketing, mock elections, marches, parades, motorcades. He has some really good advice, too, for people who are in, you know, foreigners who are standing up to their own governments. And if you want to get Western opinion on your side. So one of his tips was make your signs in English because what you want when the foreign media are there covering the protest. Like if you're having a protest or, you know, people are standing outside the government building demanding whatever, they end some policy they consider to be unjust, or they want the ruler to step down, whatever it is, or calling for free and open elections, saying, don't write your slogans in your native tongue, because then Westerners watching the media coverage won't know what it's saying, that what the point of you doing that stuff is to get public opinion on your side in the world court. And so you got to do it in English so that they understand what you're what you're protest is that you know that stuff like that there's real practical things that you might not have thought about but is is necessary things like you know had calling for general strikes and stuff like that sit-ins walk-ins civil disobedience for neutral laws all kinds of stuff like this all right and again he he doesn't just brainstorm and come up with a bunch of stuff he goes through and, and documents and says oh in this country in this conflict this is what these people did da, 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 and goes through all right what's funny is with the in the documentary, How to Start a Revolution, they cover what happened with the this, this student group who was largely responsible for the fall of um, Milosevic's regime in Serbia. And what was funny is, you know, this was filmed before, obviously, the events of January 6th, but it involved this group just mass marched and, like, just overtook, you know, took to the streets and swarmed this government building and went in and found evidence of a, that the election had been tampered with. And so <laughs> it's just kind of funny on the heels of, you know, what was happening with Trump and everything that in this case, you know, the people making this documentary was like, I see, you see how the dictator manipulated the election and the people, the way they stood up to that, that phony election, was they just stormed the government building and went in and found evidence of the corruption and then took it out to the press. And that's how they toppled the dictator. <laughs> it's just they didn't you know paint the people as traitors and insurrectionists and wow the idea that you would after an election that you would just storm the government building and because you didn't think that your guy won or, or you you didn't think that the guy who said he won really did win that's amazing you know so anyway it was just funny but what is interesting what would struck me just watching that documentary was if you just see the footage of it it was like they had, I don't know, at least 10,000 people, maybe a lot more. And all they did was just fill the streets when they thought this election was corrupt and that Milosevic, you know, didn't really win the election. They just filled the streets, just people, you know, shoulder to shoulder. That's how densely they were packed. And they just filed in and went into this government building and just took it over and looked around and, you know, claimed they found evidence of of cheating and whatever. And it's like, what what are you going to do? If you're the government, you're just going to send troops out and just mow people down who are just standing there protesting? So that's what I'm getting at, that it wouldn't work if you only had 15 people and they were just standing outside the government building a whole up sign saying, you know, Milosevic is a fraud. He, you know, he, uh, he isn't our legitimate ruler. Nobody would care. And if you had a thousand people and they had AK-47s and they tried to go in and overthrow his regime soldiers and or police would have just come out and gunned them down and that wouldn't have worked either but that's not what they did instead what they did is they had whatever at least ten thousand people maybe more i don't know just flood the streets non-violently and go in and say this is not acceptable this regime is unjust and that worked okay and so I'm, i'm just pointing out these things to show that I think a lot of people, you know, considering how would you stand up to a regime like that you're automatically going towards military tactics and, oh, we would need this many people. And then if we captured this supply depot and we did this and we had this much ammunition, we could, be... and I'm saying, n- no, you don't, the, the government, like the actual apparatus of the state is a very small percentage of the overall population. You know, at, at best, maybe there's 10,000 people that you could say, are really part of the, you know, the elite ruling class in the United States. And I think that's a generous number. And there's, what, 330 million, something like that, total people? All right, so you might say, oh, what about the, the military? Well, right, but even there, the military, it's ideological. As Mises points out, he says, you know, its ideas are ultimately where power comes from, that the dictator, yes, has the army to protect him, but it's ideas in the heads of the soldiers that keep them pointing their guns out at the people rather than turning around and pointing the guns at the at the dictator. Okay, so, and, and again, I'm, I'm repeating some things I think I've said in earlier episodes, but if you really thought the essence of political power derived from military might, if that's what you thought, and that the way dictators keep people in line is primarily through fear and just the threat of violence or punishment then you would expect in a dictatorship or, you know, an absolutely totalitarian society, the, the leader would, wouldn't care about social media or internet access or what they teach in the public schools. Cause he would just say, no, my, my soldiers, you, everybody knows if you criticize me, you're dead or I'll lock you up. And so oh, no one would criticize him. Right. And no, that's the opposite of what we see. It's precisely in places like North Korea, where they have the tightest control on education, on internet access, and so on, and where the people are bombarded with constant propaganda about how beneficent the leader is, how altruistic, how much, you know, how grateful they should be to have this public servant leading over them, as opposed to other countries where their leaders are immoral and, you know, not, not so kind-hearted and whatnot and benevolent right so what is that showing it's precisely in totalitarian societies where there's a dictator at the top that he needs to really control the flow of information because he knows how fragile how precarious his power really is that if people learn the truth he's done that information can topple his regime not oh oh, i got to make sure the rebels don't get enough guns Otherwise, you know, they can stand. To, no, no, if the people turn against you, that's it. You say, what about the army? Again, well, the army is recruited from the people. Right, so obviously with these things, you know, you can sit there and nitpick and come up with counterexamples thing, but that's the general thrust of this. And that's what, what to realize. And Gene Sharp, in this documentary, he had a nice thing. I'm, I'm not gonna get the exact wording right, but he says what you need to do if you want to stand up to a dictator... It's just, and he said that it's not always the same analysis. That you know, there's lots of nuance and detail, particular to the you know the country, the culture, and whatever, and you know the people's existing views of how government should work and how how sovereignty flow through and things like this. So, for any particular regime that you think is unjust, he said, analyze it and look at what are the foundations, what are the pillars in society that are holding up that regime and so you don't need to use violence and go after the regime itself just knock out its power sources and then it will just fall of its own weight all right so that in some cases that might be easier said than done but that's that's where he's coming from so again this isn't gene sharp is not coming from a position of oh there's these bad people out there but you know we're squeamish we wouldn't want to use violence because that's icky or we can't out of moral principle he's just saying no that, that won't work that Violence is what the dictator excels in. That's their comparative advantage. Don't fight them on their terms. All right, so I'll put links, of course. So you're listening, folks, to BobMurphyShow.com/slash/184. If you go to that link, uh, you'll—I'll put links to all these things if you're curious and want to see more. So that's a good segue into this thing Silas Barta sent me recently. So Silas, by the way, is my co-author of the booklet Understanding Bitcoin. So, if you go to understandingbitcoin.us, is the URL, I believe, where our free PDF has been up there for a while, where we just explain the mechanics of cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin in particular, and you know, some of the economic issues involved. But anyway, so that's, I'm just telling you who this guy Silas is. So, he emailed me recently and said I could mention his name that uh, after the stuff on January 6th happened, he thought it was funny that there was a sense in which what happened to Trump is what my vision was like when I was writing much earlier during the George W. Bush years. And so in particular, what Silas is talking about is he's saying how when Trump lost legitimacy in the eyes of most people, not his you know, supporters, of course, but like the established institutions of our society, he was saying so like the tech platforms all shut him off, including, you know, amazon's data storage there were reports that other organs people within the government basically just started treating mike pence as the acting commander-in-chief like in other words stuff stopped being routed to president trump and instead so this is again just that we're saying this is before january 20 so this is from january 6th onward before biden is sworn in that there were a lot of reports coming out, some of which could have been exaggerated or whatever because the media hates Trump's gut so much, but just suggesting that the way the federal government began operating after January 6th was they just cut Trump out of the loop and you know no longer were allowing him to effectively be president. They kind of just said, no, nah, he's not the president anymore after what just happened. And so what Silas said to me in the is, I never thought I'd see the day when a s- scenario like the one you described played out might be a good post or a Bob Murphy show topic. Okay. And so then I I asked him, I, we had trouble finding it, but I had written an article a long time ago and he, Silas was able to dig it up on, a, you know, it's these archiving things or whatever, because I think the post, it was on a website that's not up anymore, but here's the excerpt that Silas was able to dig up from. So this is a thing that I wrote again, I think in the early 2000s. So I, so this is me talking from back then. I think a lot of people dream of storming Washington and trying Bush at all, meaning George W. Bush, in a makeshift court of natural law. Rather than fret over the sad lessons of the French Revolution when just such a plan was implemented, I offer a better, not to mention classier dream, colon. Imagine that George W. Bush wakes up one day and finds that all of his staff has deserted him. He walks out into the street and starts barking orders to passersby, and they just laugh and keep walking. Okay, so that's what I what, what I wrote back then. So at the time I was this is when you know, just to remind you of the context. The US had invaded Iraq and it turned out oops, apparently there's no weapons of mass destruction after our, our bad. Well, at least Saddam was a bad guy otherwise, you know, we just invaded a country for no reason. And you know, some libertarian types were calling George W. Bush and his cronies war criminals and stuff like that and were I think a lot of them had daydreams of if we ever got strong enough, you know, we would, we would go and we would try all these people as war criminals. And so what I was saying in this thing is, well, that's scary because, you know, that, remember what happened in the French revolution? Like once you start overturning the elites and getting vengeance, things get out of hand and lots of people end up dead. So are we sure you want to go down that path? And I was saying, so rather than doing that, wouldn't it just be better if we really could just convince most people that George W. Bush is a war criminal, we don't need to punish him. Just Everyone just stops treating him like he has any power. And he's walking around yelling orders at people. Hey, I'm the president. What are you doing? And everyone's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Thank you. That's, that's a cool story, bro. And they just keep walking. That that, to me, would be the most elegant way that a society would handle something like that. Like, the, like That's the way you defang a dictator is if everyone just stops listening to him right? It's, it's not like he's General Zod from Superman 2 and can just, you know, just kill a bunch of people on his own. The only power somebody has in our society to be, you know, the only way you can really wreak large-scale havoc is if you get thousands or more people to obey your orders. And so when you think about, it, like, really, all you have to do for someone to not be a dictator is have no one pay attention to him. Okay. So on the one hand, like that's duh, okay, Bob, but I think it's important to stress that. All right. So anyway, Silas just thought that was funny because that's what I said. I wanted to happen. That would be the best way to deal with George Bush. It sounded like a pipe dream. And yet something like that did happen with Donald Trump. And so what the irony of course, is that I was not a big fan of what happened to Trump. And so there I should clarify you know, well, why am I not happy? So it's, it's, it's I guess it's good to see that that can happen, that there can be someone that can lose legitimacy, such as other people that like in the deep state don't, don't listen to them. But the problem is, you know, the reason I'm not a big fan of it is the reason they opposed Trump was not for the official reasons they give. So that's the issue. Okay. So if it, if the other members of the government were just like, you know, this guy, Trump is erratic and he wants to, uh launch, you know, start a war with Iran and we we just, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take his order seriously. I would, you know, that would be one thing, but that's not what's going on. Okay. When people oppose Trump or these, you know, these particular people, especially the deep state people, it's not because they were, oh my gosh, he said mean things about Mexican immigrants. I can't get to sleep at night. That, that's not what's going on. That's not why those types of people care about Donald Trump. Right. So like I said, it is interesting that that happened, but ironically, it's it's not because people thought, oh, there's no such thing as a president anymore. It's more they thought this guy is not our, our legitimate president and they kind of deferred to somebody else. And so that's why I'm not happy with the developments since, you know, November, 2020. That it's not living up to what I was saying back then because back then I was picturing, ah, so many people have been educated on the dangers of, an imperial presidency that they just realized, you know, nobody should be president. In particular, this guy George W. Bush. It wasn't when I wrote that essay. I wasn't thinking they're all going to turn and have Dick Cheney be the new commander in chief de facto. <laughs> Obviously, that wouldn't have been an improvement. That's not what I meant. So that's why this time around, even though Silas is right, it is funny how that lived up to some of my dream. It actually was a nightmare. Let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who were in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, we've since moved to MeWe. So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars. In order to get into the fun group at Miwi, and always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about this? What about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. Okay, let me now just to round up this particular episode, talk a little bit about. The Adventures in Pacifism, Louis C.K. edition. So if you remember, folks, I had sponsored a contest where $100 went the first prize, $50 to the second, and $25 to the third. I had played a clip from a Louis C.K. The show was called Louis. And he goes into a diner with his date. Like you can tell, it's probably a first date. And they sit down, and there's these high school kids horsing around, and they're being loud and obnoxious. And Louis kind of looks over his shoulders. Hey, guys, can you keep it down over there? And thinks that's it. And then the one kid comes up and gets in his face and just just escalates the situation saying, you know, he's going to beat him up and everything unless Louis apologizes and whatever. And so Louis does and just totally emasculates himself and it's really awkward. The, The date loses all respect for him and the kids laugh and walk away. So my challenge was, what could Louis have done in that situation without debasing himself and, you know, losing his manhood, but without also threatening the kid? Or literally using violence against a kid, and so and I would, and that's that's what the uh, prize was for. So I'll just briefly read the the three winners. And I had the people in my private group vote, so they were the ones who who voted on this. And I submitted an entry as well. Sad to say, my entry I think came in fourth place, so I didn't have to pay myself any money. So the the top place says uh, so. This person's doing a. Like a like a scene, like re- reenacting the scene. So Sean, Sean's the name of the punk kid, says, "When was the last time you got your rear end kicked?" And Louis says, "The last time, about six months ago." And Louis says, uh, "You see that Range Rover, Sean, number sixty eight from Dillinger High School? That's my butt kicking prize." And Sean says, "You want me to believe you won that Rover in a fight?" And he says, "No, no, no, no Sean, number sixty eight from Dillinger High." So he's saying that because. Sean, the kid in the in the show, has his, his jacket on, his sports jacket. I won that in the settlement from the last guy who I let kick my rear end. I, by the way, with this stuff, it's the other word for donkey, but I don't want to get profanity on the podcast, so that's why I keep saying these other words. It was a pretty bad beating, but totally worth it, Sean, number 68 from Dillinger High. Plenty of witnesses like her and him pointing at a patron were there was a slam dunk case. And he just keeps going on hey sean number 68 from dillinger high can i ask you two questions before you kick my butt what's that first when you lay into me could you get your buddies to join in i really want a nicer house and second sean number 68 from dillinger high knowing what will likely happen after this butt kicking and that you won't be the one actually paying for this when was the last time your dad kicked your butt i mean really kicked your butt like costing him hundreds of thousands butt kicking Sean looks at his friends, breaks out in a disingenuous laugh and says, I'm just effing you with you, Louie. Don't get so serious and walks off a little less loud. Okay. So that's, that was the, the number one winner as to how Louis could have handled it. And just in case you don't get like to, to keep stressing Sean, number 68 from Dillinger high, he's saying like, just from your jacket, I can tell who you are. I heard your name was Sean. I can see what school you go to. So there's going to be no problem in me f- figuring out who you are and telling the authorities, and so then we're going to sue you and, da, 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 and get all your stuff. Incidentally, I had some people complaining, saying this shouldn't have been a legitimate entry because it involves the threat of the police, you know, the courts and the police coming in, arresting the kid, and then at, at the very least, you know, garnishing money from his dad's checking account or whatever because of this judgment. So there, I, I let it go because even in a free society that was pacifist, there would still be courts and there would still be monetary damages and things like that, right? So that's why, like I said, I, I was lenient on on this particular one that, yeah, it involves the government legal system, but you could imagine a world where it didn't. And so I didn't think this was intrinsically based on the threat of violence. That strictly speaking, again, you could have a system where you could just say, yeah, you can go ahead and beat me up, but then I'm going to go to a judge, tattle on you, and then they're going to have an opinion, you know, render an opinion and say, Sean, or if he's a minor, Sean's dad or mom, you know, for all we know, the mom is the breadwinner. We don't know. Oh, this victim, Louie, $100,000 in medical bills and whatever, other kinds of compensation. And until that judgment were paid, the community would know that, oh yeah, this is a guy walking around who doesn't pay his debts. So even though nothing physical, no violence and retribution would ever happen to Sean or his parents, that could affect things like, you know, maybe the, the dad's credit and mom's credit would be bad because hey, you know, this judge said that because your son just beat somebody up, you owe the guy a hundred thousand dollars and you haven't done anything about that yet. And so they they would just, you know, doors would be closed to them or what have you. All right. So that's that's what I'm what I'm saying. That it's I don't think the idea of, hey, if you do this to me, there are procedures we have in society that adjudicate things like this that we don't just have people going around beating people up and nothing happens to them. But yet that does not mean someone is going to come, you know, violent guys are going to come and beat you up or throw you in a cage. That doesn't need to mean that. Okay, the second place winner was a real short one, short and sweet. Person just said, I think simply saying, no, I won't do that and risk getting beaten up would be the way to go. I have been in a very similar situation and I did exactly that. That's That's the winner. So I think that's, good. Um, probably in real life, that's something closest to what I would have done. Well, in reality, I wouldn't have, the, the way Louie talked to them in the beginning was a mistake. Okay. So in, re, in reality, if I was in a situation like that and there was kids being obnoxious, I either would ignore them and just, you know, be annoyed in my head. Or if for some reason, like I couldn't leave if, you know, if, I don't know, like if we're, if my kid's birthday party's going on or something, and we just know we're going to be sitting here for an hour and these kids are being obnoxious and ruining it, I would probably walk over to them, you know, not talking down to them, but just saying, guys, look, I know you're having screwing around or you're having a good time, whatever, and I get that, but we're over here trying to have a party, you know, is there any way you can keep it? Something like that. Because I think the thing that really bothered this kid and why he had to stand up to Louie was because Louie, the way he initially told them to be quiet was dismissive of them. All right. So he like he was letting them know he was in charge and they were being punks. And so that's why the kid had to come over and reassert his dominance. All right. So, but in any event, the kid just coming up to Louie and saying, You gotta apologize, absolutely no way in the world you're gonna do that. And then you gotta just sit there and, you know, say, Okay, no, I'm not doing that. So are you actually gonna deck me in the face in front of all these people? All right. So that's where this person was coming from. Okay, the third place winner says, if I'm Louie, and I assume I can't use my six foot eight frame to intimidate, like I'm actually Louie, right? So the, the this contestant is saying in real life, he happens to be six eight, but he's saying, okay, let's pretend that I'm not this big, that I'm in Louie's body. It's really simple. I pull out my cell phone and take a picture and I send it to my brother. I explain that I've taken a picture of him and I send it to my brother. Then I remark that he's got a letterman jacket. So I know he's probably a pretty popular dude that is well known. And based on how big of a bully he seems to be, He probably has a sizable amount of enemies, happy to point the finger at him. I explained that I'm a grown man, and though I'm not afraid, I'm not going to fight him. I'm a pacifist. I won't punch back. And then, you know, he would yell to his friends, I won't punch back. So Sean here would just be beating up a man who refuses to fight. And then I turned back to Sean, look him in the eye and say, Sean... I know you have a college fund. If you beat me up, it's mine. Sean, if you don't have one, I'll get your parents' money. Your dad's 401k will be mine. I'll have your car, your clothes. Your parents will be renting me their room rent-free for the next decade. All I have to do is take a few punches and kicks from a 16-year-old. That's it. I can do that. I'll be playing on your PlayStation 5 for the rest of my life, and I don't even like PlayStation. You see, Sean, I'm an Xbox man, but I'll play it because it will be mine. And all I have to do is take a few unwanted punches to the face from you. And make no mistake, Sean, if you lose control, you will most assuredly be convicted and you'll go to jail and your life will be ruined all because you wanted to get out your baby maker ruler, he used a different word, in front of your friends. Now, Sean, I've already sent your picture to my brother and based on what you've already said to me, I can bring charges that you harassed me and my friend and threatened extreme violence against me and showed scars to prove you meant it. But if you ask nicely, I'll let you go back to your friends and maybe not call my brother and my lawyer. But even if you do, I still might. I still might make that call, Sean. I don't know. It depends on how bad I want to play your PlayStation, Sean. But if you don't ask nicely, I'll definitely make that call. I don't know. It's up to you. It keeps going on. So on that one, (laughs) I probably didn't do a good job betting that. I didn't realize that he had threatened to put him in jail. I guess I missed that on the initial thing. So that part, technically, I would say, yeah, that's he's threatening violence by saying to Sean, you're going to end up in jail. But the earlier stuff about I'm taking your dad's money, I'm taking your Xbox or wherever, that one, again, I've explained why I let that stuff slide. Okay, so that was third place. Now you're wondering, all right, Bob, what did you say? So here was my entry. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying this is what I myself would do in this situation. This was just my entry for the contest because I wanted people to think outside the box. All right, so here's what I wrote. So again, for those who didn't watch the actual scene, from the Louie Louis show, you need to realize this kid was not screwing around. This kid was, was serious. And like he did have, his hands were all cut up. So it's and he, he was saying to Louie, yeah, you see my knuckles? The reason they're like this is because last week I put a guy in the hospital that, you know, I, I punched him so much his teeth fell out and stuff. So this kid is really, he's not screwing around. And okay, so it's you need to realize that to understand what my answer was here is to just say this is something that one might have tried. So this is me typing my answer. Okay, so I don't think this kid actually wants to fight, especially inside the diner. He just wants to humiliate Louis in front of his date to impress his buddies. So Louis needs to show the kid that he's truly not afraid, but also give the kid a way of saving face and leaving the situation without Louis having won. When the kid starts making overt threats, Louis says. So just to be clear, Sean, you're going to fight me right here in the diner because you didn't like me asking you guys to quiet down when you first came in? Presumably, the kid answers with some version of, That's right, a-hole. Then Louis says, Okay, well, if you and I are going to fight, let's at least make it fair. You'll need a weapon. Louis looks around and holds up a butter knife. Eh, this is decent, but not really enough, he says almost absent-mindedly. Then Louis picks up a plate. I can't see in the video, but let's assume there are plates within reach. Holding each side with his left and right hands and headbutts the middle of it to crack it into pieces. Then he takes the most jagged piece and hands it to Sean, rotating it so the smooth outer edge of the plate is near Sean's hand for safe handling. Up to this point, Louie has obviously called Sean's bluff. I can't say what he should do next, because it of course depends on how Sean reacts to this initial play. But from this point forward, Louie has to give Sean an out. For example, if Sean says, What the hell, you crazy old effer? then Louie can just accept that like, yep, mental illness runs in my family to allow Sean to stride away and say to his buddies, you see that crazy kook over there? But everybody deep down will know what happened. Okay, so again, I'm saying the way to flip it is to say, okay, if we're going to fight, it's not going to be fair right now. Just you fighting me with your bare hands. You need a weapon if you're coming against me, buddy. And he picks up a plate and smashes it on his head and then gives the jagged piece to Sean. Like, here, use this as a weapon against me. Okay, and... (laughs) So noted technically that's not threatening him. He's he's actually he's giving him a he didn't say if you come at me, you're in trouble. I'm gonna hurt you. He's just saying it's not fair right now. You're coming at me just without a weapon here. And then by smashing the plate against his head, he's showing I'm not afraid of taking physical pain, buddy. So you're you know, in other words, don't think your words are, are scaring me if I'm someone crazy enough to smash this plate on my own face. All right. So that's that's and again, like I'm saying. It's hard to, that by itself, would the kid wouldn't just walk away. Something would have to happen, but the kid would need to be given an out. And so, yeah, like my suggestion was, based on what just happened, the kid would probably say something to the effect that Louis is acting like a crazy guy. And then Louis should just run with that to be like, yep, there is something wrong with me. So the kid can then use that as a thing to then go back to his friends to make fun of him with, right? So, so again, Louis has to give him a way that Sean is able to walk away from that claiming victory, even though Louis did not apologize, which is what, you know, the original play was. Okay, so there you go. I hope we all learned something. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And remember, the next time you think violence is necessary... By the way, let me just mention this. What is libertarianism? Whether we're talking about minimum wage public schools, dealing with Saddam Hussein. Most of what libertarians do is tell the public, you think we need this institution of organized violence to threaten a bunch of innocent people in order to get something done to make society better. If you don't see the connection there. What are we talking about, Bob? Everything the state does is based on violence against innocent people, right? Oh, you want soup kitchens? Okay, well, we got to tax everybody. What does that mean? Some people... Are going to have guns pointed at them to have money taken from their paychecks to give to the soup kitchen because otherwise they might not give enough. That's why we can't rely on private charity. Same thing with public schools. Oh, we need to take everyone's money who owns property in this area to fund schools because we can't just trust voluntary private charity to do it. That that won't work. Oh, Saddam Hussein. What we need to go bomb him with money taken from people against their will. We can't just rely on mercenaries and people voluntarily going and fighting him because that that won't be enough. Right, so everything the state does is either funded involuntarily at the very least, and often the thing that it's doing involves more coercion being applied to people who in many cases are innocent, like even on its own terms. Like, you know, if it comes to like the antitrust enforcement or something, like no one thinks these companies used guns in order to ca- capture market share. We're just saying, well, no, this would be unacceptable. This, these companies have too much market share, so they need to be broken up. All right, so I'm saying what libertarianism often is in practice is saying there's all these areas where the public right now thinks violence needs to be used and no, it doesn't. You know, minimum wage laws, what's that? The state's coming in with guns saying, if we catch any employer paying someone less than seven twenty-five an hour, you're in trouble. No, we don't, we don't need that. That's not the way to help workers with low skills. There's a, a voluntary way to help them that's much better. Okay, so I'm saying just take it further. That all I'm saying is, yeah, libertarianism is right, the non aggression principle, all these areas where you think initiating aggression is necessary for civilization. Standard libertarianism says, no, it's not. And I'm just pushing it further, saying existing libertarians, you know, Rothbard, Walter Block, people like that, they're big on you don't ever need to initiate aggression and all the bad things that the neocons tell you would happen or the left liberals, progressives would tell you what happen either from foreign threats or from domestic unfairness. If we don't initiate aggression, the way you libertarians define things, that's wrong. Okay. But Rothbard et al. think you still need to use violence against those who do initiate aggression. Otherwise society would fall apart, right? I can't imagine a world where we don't use violence against aggressors. And I'm saying you can imagine it. And in fact- Not only would it work, I submit it would work much better. With that, I will wrap up this episode. Again, for links and all this stuff, go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 184, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.